We make decisions every day. While some of them are small, others can have a huge impact on our own lives and those around us. But how often do we stop to think about how we make decisions? Welcome to Deciding Factors, a podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. In each episode, I'll talk to world-class experts and leaders in government, medicine, business, and beyond, who can share their firsthand experiences and explain how they make some of their biggest decisions. We'll give you fresh insights to help you tackle the tough decisions in your professional life. So much of how we communicate and learn these days is dictated and driven by social media. And of all the platforms, Twitter has been among the most influential in shaping our society. Launched in 2006, the app has become the megaphone of choice for a wide range of public figures, from politicians to pro-athletes to muckraking journalists. It's proven to have both benefits and drawbacks. Utilized to shine a spotlight on wrongdoing and help organize for positive change, it can also fuel echo chambers and further divide us from one another. And these days, Twitter is discussed just as much for the regulation and even potential removal of specific users, most notably former President Donald Trump, as the content itself. My guest today is uniquely positioned to help us understand how Twitter works and the impact it's had on global society. Kirsten Stewart is the former founding general manager of Twitter Canada, as well as its VP of Media in North America, after previously working for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. She currently serves as the first chief revenue officer of PEX, a leading company promoting digital rights technology. Listen in as Kirsten and I discuss the company's roller coaster history, including the multiple departures of its founder and CEO, Jack Dorsey, the way it has shaped the media industry, and the changes she would make to Twitter if she were CEO. Kirsten, welcome to the show. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on. You left Twitter in 2016. What was it like to work inside of Twitter during Jack's previous departure from Twitter? Because I know you were there. And then I believe you were there for uh, his return as well. So just talking about kind of the culture, the atmosphere, the energy uh, would would be, I think, really interesting. Sure. Uh, Just to clarify, I actually joined when Dick Costolo was CEO. So I had not been there for Jack's earlier tenure as CEO when the company first kicked off. I did join pre-IPO. Pre-IPO is obviously an exciting time at a company like Twitter. It's fast growing. At the time, it was very much kind of neck and neck or head to head with uh, other social media outlets like Facebook. Um, In fact, it was kind of the same size and Twitter a little bit getting the advantage because it was mobile first as opposed to Facebook, which was still very much web-based. Being a part of Twitter at that really formative stage and being part of Dick's leadership team, that was a, you know, it was a very exciting time. Cut to about three or four years later, that's when Dick was leaving. Jack uh, was going to be coming back as leader. I think simultaneously um, still was also, you know, he was co-CEOing because he was still with uh, Square as well. So it was an interesting time to have a founder come back as a CEO but then also be responsible for two companies uh, at the same time. I started out as the founding um, uh, GM of Twitter Canada. It was considered to be one of the emerging markets. We learned a lot of lessons from the U.S. team. Because I have a media background, I used to be the head of the CBC, and I was a number of broadcasters like Hallmark running the international channel business. Twitter said, why don't you come down to the States, head up the uh, North American media uh, part of the business, which I did. 
what was the common mission, if you will, at the time for Twitter? I think the independence of Twitter and keeping that that freedom of voice, if you want to call it, that was very important to everybody um, who was there at Twitter. I think it was a bit of a tricky position to sit in um, when you have challenges like um, wanting to extend anonymity to certain folks who would need protection um, in order to feel like they had a free voice. So in certain countries where there was a concern that there'd be a crackdown on other dissidents or activists. You know, I think Twitter was very proud in saying that, you know, we stand with, you know, I think everyone remembers the um, Arab Spring. Arab Spring was a really invigorating time because people were very excited about the role a social media platform could play to give activists the microphone. And so the opportunity, whether it was in Syria or a number of other countries across Arab nations, um, it was the uprising and giving the voice to those that didn't otherwise have avenues to speak to the outside world. So I think when it comes to the the staff, you know, they're very proud of it. They might take a little sometimes too much credit than than uh, that we were necessarily due, but because you get caught up in the moment of, wow, if we weren't here, this wouldn't be happening. But, you know, at the same time, there's a challenge because anonymity also breeds trolls and breeds all other kinds of problems. So it, you know, it's, it, it's always a hard space to play in, but people were definitely mission focused, um, but there was a financial benefit to being so as well. Major voices started to come onto the platform, whether they were from government, like you know, leaders of state like Obama and folks like that, or whether it was um, sports stars, LeBron James, and you know, all those folks started rolling out onto Twitter, having huge influence that's, you know, the monetization was an opportunity to kind of build on that and in an unobtrusive way as possible. So users weren't put off by the ads. The opportunity was to try to monetize within the space. There was huge amount of monetization opportunities with video. Monetization was purely based on advertiser sponsorship, you know, riding the, the, the content. I was there at a time when they were trying to actually convince airlines, banks, telephone companies, that it was a good thing to be on Twitter. You know, the first their first experiences with Twitter and that ability for a user to reach out to them directly were not always the most positive interaction than you can imagine if your luggage was lost, sure. or flight was late, um, and they wanted to stay away from it. Like it, they, the job that we had was showing brands how you could turn those experiences into positives and actually not just kind of mitigate an issue that was a problem at the time, but you could actually convert somebody into a more loyal user or, you know, client in whatever way. So it was, you know, we had folks like banks and all that saying, I'm never going to start a Twitter uh, account. I'm never going to start a Twitter handle. I'm just going to get abuse, you know, to show them actually, if you could engage and have a conversation with someone, even off the visualness and actually doing it in DM, it, you actually converted them deeper. You spoke to this a little bit about the transition, but like what specifically led Jack Dorsey to make the decision to come back to Twitter at that time? Well, I think there was a bit of turmoil going on at Twitter. You know, there was a a lot of um, high expectations around the IPO um, that started to be problematic. I think it was very challenging for Dick to explain and to justify in a lot of ways when Wall Street came you know, on a quarterly basis and probably much more frequently to him directly to say, you know, where's that user growth? What's going on? And so I think 
you know, he was under a lot of pressure to make something happen in a way that people didn't understand completely what success looked like and how he was actually turning it around and, and actually was growing in a meaningful way. So I think it was a relief to people. We were just, I think, tired of the constant attacks on Twitter, on his leadership, on his lag behind Facebook. I think people were looking for change. And so Jack coming back, again, was that sense of, hey, this is the founder. Maybe as the founder, you know, he innately understands it in a way that he can trigger something product-wise. Some things did change. He changed the, the length of tweets. Product, though, was quite belabored still for a number of years afterwards. And only just as, you know, within the last year were a bunch of products released, but, you know, they didn't always take. Yeah, so great segue. Like, why do you think, well, how and why did Jack Dorsey make the decision this this latest time to step down? Everyone has their assumptions. No one knows but the man himself. But I think he's pretty opinionated. And I guess being the CEO of, of Twitter, you can't really have opinions about anything, as probably Mark Zuckerberg is finding out now with the recent shift in the in the meta price. Uh it's not fun being a CEO of a social media company anymore. It used to be a lot of fun. It used to be the rock star position. People made movies about you and they might always be that flattering, but hey, you were a superstar that people, you know, followed around. Now you're damned if you do, damned if you didn't in terms of politics, in terms of deplatforming, in terms of, you know, what your influence or your impact on the world was, was largely being measured. And, you know, there were uh, agencies that were starting to come down on these guys. It was no longer the fun time as it used to be. It's going to be interesting to see how Parag deals with some of the challenges, you know, one of the first product moves that was made right after he came in and obviously was underway before he was CEO was immediately taken down because it wasn't thought through. And it was actually something that was setting up for more trolling. I think, you know, as we see now, there's another form of product that's being tested because the nature of Twitter being first 140 characters and 280, and you get a smaller landscape. They're looking to help creators by putting entire articles like Medium within Twitter, taking the idea of Medium and putting it into Twitter. The problem with that is if there's still a no edit button in Twitter, that's not going to work either. So it's, a, it's thinking through the impact of the change you make in real life and not having people put themselves at more risk for more abuse. And I think that's, you know, it's going to be a challenge to get people to post without the edit button to actually post longer things that can then be brought back against them uh, down the road or things that might need to edit. If you can't edit something as a journalist, I don't think they're going to want to post an article on Twitter, regardless of the fact that it's a nice landscape. What was and what is your vision for Twitter? Did it diverge from you know Jack Dorsey's vision? And what about others at Twitter? Did, did you find that there was kind of consensus not dissimilar to what we're hearing about the kind of unrest that happened to Google and Facebook and now Spotify over the terms of service they want to put in for engagement of content, like because the Joe Rogan controversy, there's going to be divisiveness within a company when you have different political and different value systems. And that happened also at Twitter. The cover of, especially the early days, a mix of naivete, positivity, and um, a little bit of ego mixed in there um, was a dangerous mix for a bit. It was the mix that put them into a few situations where they didn't think things through in terms of the impact of some of the products um, that they were putting out. And 
I think my role as someone who had come from traditional media and seeing, you know, how much media influences uh, society and a number of us who, like me, had come from the traditional media space, we're trying to set off warning bells a little early about content moderation, about like, what does it mean to have a free voice on a platform? If that free voice feels that it's been hounded off the platform, is there true free voice uh, because they've been trolled off? These platforms are all private. You know, they could make whatever rules they wanted to um, from the very beginning. If they had been maybe more stringent, behaviors would not have gone as crazy as they have. And maybe there would not be this need for government or policymakers to feel that they need to step in over them now to, to regulate. Self-regulation would have been a nice idea, but it needed to be done quite early, I think, before it got as slippery as it does now. Now they've gone to deplatforming. And you see the reactions of people and they're now trying to put bills forward that force social media platforms to take anybody and not deplatform them, which is, you know, in the world of Nazis and horrible other you know, voices that are wanting to you know, retake their, their microphones on platforms like this. It's a pretty dangerous place to be. Looking at the pro-con balance sheet of, of social media and, and saying, we can't put the genie back in the bottle, but this maybe is a net negative for society. Like, how do you think people look at that? Yeah, I think anybody in any social media platform right now is probably wondering, you know, what they could do better. I think I look at it as someone who worked in it. Um, you know, what was my responsibility? What could I have done differently or better? I think there were a number of people who try to raise voices. It's difficult when people don't understand what the end play is. It's difficult when there's a lot of folks who are focused on the product um, rather than the impact of that product. You know, there is a big gap between mm. what engineers and products can do or understand about society. They're not necessarily, you know, taught ethics or those kinds of things in the same way that others are. And at least within the US, there's this perception that it's like the elites on Twitter and it's an eco chamber for the elites. And the elites think that everything that happens on Twitter matters so much. <laughs> and that yeah. most most Americans aren't aren't on Twitter. How how does Twitter do you think think about that? And how should they think about that? It actually is quite in line with the mandate of a business. Like when you think about the challenges of user growth, it was always being asked internally, what can we do to make our platform more accessible, more reachable, more engaging for users? Because user growth was a major driver of a company's valuation because it was usually value times users. We talk about echo chambers and that's a huge challenge, but it's one that is hard to dismantle because to those people in those echo chambers, the people in the echo chamber are the ones that matter the most to them. <laughs> so it's, um, it's mm -hmm. you know, they're, mm -hmm. they don't necessarily want to bust their echo chambers either. So I think for Twitter, the push to growth, maybe more product accessibility or bandwidth accessibility to support the product was needed earlier to get it more ubiquitous. You know, you're not posting funny pictures or, you know, it's not cat videos necessarily on Twitter. So there is kind of a a need to be, you know, engaging and use voice. And that demands a lot of people. It's not a passive experience to be on Twitter. If it is, then it's not probably a very fun experience. Facebook obviously does have greater user penetration, um, mm -hmm. a broader user base. So they, they have overcome that. Have they done something right that Twitter hasn't done? Or have they done that clumsily? Like, what's your, what's your take there? You know, we've just seen uh, in recent days, the drop of the you know, meta value, I think was over 25% last night. I don't know how much it was 23%. I think at, at the open first day post their latest quarter, 
that had showed user growth slipping and not, didn't just grow their user base actually slipped for the first time or t- maybe second time in their 10 year history or read. So, you know, this is a challenge for all social media platforms and it's going to be interesting to see where it lands. I think, you know, asking big social media companies to grow much more is going to be a challenge. Um, they're trying to hang on at this point. How do you see the future of news consumption? How do you see that changing and, and Twitter's role in it? Social media is a distributor of news. It's not a creator of news. It doesn't hire journalists. It's almost like as carriers of news, those social platforms got to kind of build their businesses literally off the backs of the work being done by traditional media in that sense of, of news. But news also needed the distribution of the social media platforms to keep relevant to whole new audiences that weren't going to turn on their televisions, their radios, or pick up newspapers anymore. So it was a, you know, it was a marriage made in, you know, strange places. One got probably better advantage of better advantage of it at the end. And then, you know, things start to happen as society starts to be able to, you're no longer a broadcaster or a newspaper, you know, with the same relationship with your readers or followers, they're talking back to you. Social media is a two-way street. It's a multiple conversation. Um, And people start to point out what they think is news or news becomes less valid. When you think about the influence of non-factual information on public through a pandemic, through an election. You know, these are times when people need the real truth and there's now a question of what is the truth and what is media and what is news. Without going down a whole political rabbit hole, but obviously former President Trump's Twitter feed, he's probably the most you know prominent person ever to have been deplatformed. What impact did his Twitter presence have and what impact do you think the deplatforming of him had? This is something where I can say can claim some uh, bit of personal experience because it was I was the head of the government team at Twitter for media for North America when you know Donald was he was already Trump was already on the platform because he has had a personal account and he was on the apprentice and you know he was a celebrity. Uh, but when it changed to a government account, because um, he w- became one of the nominees for the Republican uh, nomination, like back back then, uh, that was something that as a service to all qualified nominees, you know, Twitter supported them through onboarding, explaining how to use the service. And so, you know, we helped to onboard uh, Donald Trump, as well as you know anybody else who was a, a qualified uh, candidate at the time. Wow. It, 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 it's, you know, you're giving someone... A microphone. Again, this was something that was inherent in the values of Twitter. So how do you regulate that, moderate that in a place where you're saying, well, I'm not a media company. So that conversation can happen on my platform and you know, go at it. Um, and the good shall win. Um, I think was I think that's the naivete part that I referred to earlier. I do believe nobody thought that they were setting up anything that would bias to negativity. I think everyone thought the good will prevail. Um, and having been from the traditional space of media, a lot of us were saying that's not going to happen because we've seen, you know, that's unfortunately that's not human nature. <laughs> but, um, it's also, it's also, you know, there's a reason they say what bleeds leads. You know, everyone has an opinion now and everyone is an expert. And when everyone's an expert, then no one is. So that's been the challenge. So deplatforming the worst of that or trying to deal with the Joe Rogans of the, the world is, again, it's a bit late to do it now. And people only, they only view it with suspicion. If they're fans of that, if it's confirmation bias, and you're seeing exactly what a lot of people want to hear, um, what is the truth anyway? 
it gets it gets very murky. When you onboarded Donald Trump as the nominee, was that like a like an actual in-person or I don't know, over Zoom interaction with him personally, or what did you kind of onboard his team? The candidate and their team. I think in the case wow. of case of Trump, he came around the New York offices and had a tour to see, you know, it's what you do as the media team to get people comfortable with, you know, there's there's some folks in the same kind of roles that wouldn't be comfortable with the microphones. You're trying to keep them, you're trying to get them to understand what they can say, can't say, don't get themselves in trouble. Like there's a lot of kind of like how how to how to play on social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, in a way that can get you the most followers, that can get you the most, you know, this is what you should do if this happens. Don't ever tweet your location mm. until you're after you've left. You know, there's safety concerns that you want to teach people in, in roles that are that are high profile. So, you know, all of that, you know, don't ever put your address. This is what happens if you, you know, say somebody else's address. These the rules, you know, there were basic rules about um, what would get you kicked off a platform, but it just got very murky lately. Okay, last question for you. You're CEO of Twitter starting tomorrow. What, what is one product innovation change uh, that you would want to implement, you know, if you started as CEO? Um. I think I would actually do more, a couple things. <laughs> if I can do two things, um, okay, more, two. <laughs> more, more, more global offices. I think there's mm-hmm. going to be a challenge the more US centric uh, any of these social media platforms become, and Twitter very much so is very US centric. Um, a lot going on there in the world. You've got to be more global. Um, and then, secondly, because I've been talking about it enough times, an edit button. And I don't believe in just going in there and being able to change anybody's thing or being able to go back and change that there could, there could be track changes, whatever, but there should be the ability. I know a number of us have, you know, tried to say something and it said something completely wrong or something else that they didn't mean to say because they just needed an auto correct or an, or an ability to edit button and it hasn't happened and it needs to happen. Even if there's some kind of like rules around how you use it. So that would be what I do go global and give a little more control to the user. I like it. The micro and the macro. Well said. <laughs> um, well, Kirsten, such a pleasure to have you on. I feel like we could talk for another hour. Uh, thank you for for coming on the show and being so candid. Uh, I thought it was a really, really fascinating conversation. No, thank you. I appreciate the, the dialogue. There were great questions and it's always great to talk about this. That was Kirsten Stewart, the former head of Twitter Canada and VP of Media for North America, among other roles. My biggest takeaway was the striking degree to which, based on how Kirsten described her experience there, Twitter's success has been a double-edged sword. When it launched, it would have been hard for its founders to foresee how massively it would be adopted, how influential it would become, and some of the other unique challenges that massive growth would pose. It's a cautionary tale for founders to make sure they are bringing in the right experts to advise about how best to navigate future phases of growth, to help them see around corners and to anticipate the challenges that are coming. We hope you'll join us next time for a brand new episode of Deciding Factors featuring another one of GLG's network members. Every day, GLG facilitates conversations with experts across nearly every industry and geography, helping our clients with insight that leads to true clarity. Feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Or email us at decidingfactors at glgroup.com if you have feedback or ideas for future show topics. For Deciding Factors in GLG, I'm Eric Jaffe. Thanks for listening.